0: I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. So lately, I've been thinking a lot about Mars, and specifically the incredible idea that someday we're going to send human beings to Mars. And that's because the idea of a Mars mission seems to be everywhere these days. You know, there was that uh, 2015 movie with Matt Damon, The Martian, and that was based on a book about going to Mars. And right now, there's this Nat Geo series, which, you guessed it, is all about the first human trip to Mars. Now, this show is speculative fiction. It's actually not really anything real, but it is being billed as something that's at least based on science. You might say it's kind of science-adjacent. So that's what we wanted to talk about in today's episode. What does science and data actually tell us about what it's like for humans to go on such a long journey all the way out to Mars? I mean, everybody thinks about developing the rockets and the habitats and stuff like that. But there's another challenge we don't think so much about, and that is what is that journey going to do to the human body? Now, NASA is actually planning to send humans to Mars right now. But there are many steps to that journey. Sometime in the 2030s, perhaps, we will send humans to orbit Mars. And then after that, we can't quite say how long after that right now, to actually get people on the surface. And that is something that I would very much like to see in my lifetime. So how do we start that journey? We need to find out what extended space-time really does to our bodies. So we decided to start out the show by talking to somebody who has actually spent time in space.
1: My name is Mike Massimino. I, I had two space shuttle flights to uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. My first flight was 12 flight days, and my second flight was uh, 14 flight days.
0: Massimino went up on the space shuttle to repair the Hubble Space Telescope in 2002 and in 2009. He didn't spend a long time in space, 23 days, 19 hours, and 48 minutes to be exact. And he says that actually getting to space, which takes only about eight and a half minutes isn't exactly easy on the body. Once the rocket leaves the launch pad...
1: You move very quickly, it goes from 0 to 17,500 miles an hour in eight and a half minutes, and the shuttle moves very, very quickly. As far as like what you feel, uh, there's a lot of shaking going on with the shuttle one, because we had solid rockets the first couple of minutes. And then um, toward the end of that, those eight and a half minutes, you start pulling some Gs. You get about uh, three Gs for the last two and a half minutes. So it's like there's a... It's, it's not too bad. It's a little uncomfortable. It's as if you have a pile of brick on your chest is what it feels like. At eight and a half minutes, the engine's cut. The acceleration stops and um, you know the, the weightlessness takes over.
0: And he says the weightlessness can be the hardest part, not the gravitational forces that press against his body as he's getting into orbit.
1: The first time you're there, it's you all new to your body, to your brain, uh, telling you that you're perfectly still, and as you move around, uh, your eyes are telling you no, you're moving around, and it leads to that conflict, which can elicit a uh, feeling of nausea, which is what happened to me on my on my first flight. You know, you're excited to be there, but you just also, you know, you, I wasn't feeling very well, and um, it lasted for about a day, and then... Uh, I, I was able to take some uh, anti-nausea medication um, at the end of day one and uh, went to bed and woke up feeling much better the next day.
0: So, not very comfortable, right? But not the end of the world. In some ways, it's very counterintuitive. You think about gently floating around in weightlessness up on the space station. It sounds like it would be very gentle on the body, actually really kind of relaxing. Instead, that's what's the hardest part of being in space. The way you move is wrong, the way your body functions isn't quite right. Turns out that spending long periods of time in weightlessness can actually cause permanent changes to the body that can be dangerous, even life-threatening. The flight time alone to Mars would take about seven months. And then once you're on Mars, you need to stay there for the better part of a year until the planets line up again. And then it's seven months back. So that means that you would spend the better part of two years either being weightless or in very reduced gravity. This would be an entirely new territory for the human body. So we wanted to understand what scientists have learned about what gravity-free living does to the body. Lucky for us, we have an active laboratory in space right now, the International Space Station. And one of the amazing things we did is actually send people up there for an entire year. Specifically, we sent Scott Kelly. And Scott has an identical twin, Mark Kelly, who's also an astronaut, and he was on the ground for this period of time. And we just tested the hell out of these two people, trying to figure out exactly what was changing to Scott Kelly's body up in space. We've known for a while that one of the biggest challenges to being weightless for a long time is changes in bone density. Basically, your bones don't really feel needed anymore, and they kind of start to go away. And the year in space gave us a chance to really study that in detail
2: crew members do lose bone density. Um, We've been able to change that with a lot of our exercise capability, but the architecture of their bone seems to be altered potentially permanently. This
0: is Dr. Jennifer Fogarty, a physiologist and the deputy chief scientist of NASA's human research program at Johnson Space Center in Houston.
2: So if you don't load the bone, if you don't stand up, if you don't do resistive exercise, if you don't lift weights, even walking, having your own body weight land in a contact force on those bones stimulates bone turnover and healthy bone growth. Um, And your your skeleton is constantly remodeling. Your body's very good at energy conservation, and it stops putting the resources into remodeling the bone the same way. And there's a disconnect in terms of how your bone remodels as it chews it up, and then it replaces it right behind it. So it's kind of like an industrial process where one is replacing the other right behind it, so it's renewing it. And That process is disconnected in terms of the cells that chew up your bone are more active than the bone, the cells that replace the bone mineral. And so we end up with gaps, um, particularly in the inner part of your bone that has this very intricate architecture in order to give the bone strength. Now, what we try to understand is they do compensate by laying more bone density down, but in a different part of their bone. And you say, it's going to be different, but is it equally as strong? Because ultimately, what you're worried about is fracture risk. From an ISS perspective, the risk happens here on Earth. From an exploration perspective, are we putting them at risk for a fracture on the surface of Mars, where they're experiencing three-eighths gravity?
0: I know one of the things that I learned about just kind of talking to uh, some of my friends in human spaceflight is the fact that your your bones, you know, are, are sort of becoming weaker. They're losing calcium, and that calcium ends up in your urine. So, you know, one of the one of the interesting challenges is that you have this very very calcium rich urine. You sort of pee your bones out, and uh, that that actually causes some some problems in the urine processing on the space station. Is, is that correct?
2: Yeah. So the current system, um, the way it was designed, I don't think they they understood the increased amount of calcium that the machine would be handling. So when they were looking at the variety of chemicals to process it, because we're recovering the water out of the urine um, that yeah, it ended up making a physical kind of product. um, They actually call it P brittle (laughs) that gets collected. But the other thing for the human um, is that your kidneys have to process it. So now we have an increased risk of kidney stones during the mission. So we, Try to understand the needs of hydration and how we can balance out some electrolytes, and also do the resistive exercise. If you uh, if you do lose less bone, we can keep those and hydrate properly. We can keep the kidney stone risk in the box because that would also be um, has a lot of potential for for catastrophic failure for the individual if the person couldn't pass the kidney stone. You'll lose them. If they can pass it, you'll lose them for the time period they're in so much pain um, and potentially, you know, on antibiotics to prevent infection. But if it's too large of a stone and they can't pass it, now you're dealing with a much more serious problem.
0: Now, one of the uh, uh, changes in the human body that people are hearing more about is our eyes, that there was there was something that we really weren't expecting, that when we went into microgravity, we had some vision problems. So, So what's causing that?
2: So this has probably um, become more evident because of the longer duration missions on the International Space Station, as opposed to our prior missions, which were much shorter shuttle. Um, We actually have been measuring changes in vision for a long time, but it was transient in that it only occurred for the time you were on your mission, and you went back to your baseline after the mission. And nobody was having symptoms that really drove folks to look at the back of the eye, do a much more in-depth exam. And so it it probably ran under the radar a little bit. And we actually have come to find out that during NASA Mir, the Russians during an experiment actually measured this problem. But it was um, kind of buried in some data and wasn't brought to light um, until probably about five or six years ago that they realized they were measuring it back, what they were seeing back then. So it's taken a bit to evolve. So as people went on longer duration missions on ISS, um, we had some folks come back with, with relatively large changes in their functional vision. I would say three cases really cross this threshold of where you start to say you have a pathological problem going on, and doctors would then do interfere with it. They would do something called a lumbar puncture, which is to measure the pressure um, of your cerebral spinal fluid, the fluid that bathes your brain and spinal cord.
0: That sounds pretty scary, actually. <laughs> One of the things you said was sort of fascinating that you realized in the in the course of this vision studies that that there was actually data that had been taken by Russians a long time ago that we just didn't realize they were measuring the same thing. Do we collaborate with the Russians? Do we share all the data about about the medical uh, observations of astronauts or is it sort of two separate things? Do we need to publish them before they become uh, discussable? How, How does that all work?
2: Yeah, it's it. It at times has been um, very different models. We Culturally, we approach it slightly differently. So I think we tend to have trouble communicating with each other. Um, we do collaborate now, for sure. During the one-year mission, obviously, that was a joint effort on many of the studies um, where Scott Kelly and Mikhail Kornienko participated, uh, Russian scientists working with uh, U.S. scientists, NASA scientists, um, trying to figure out what the, what the approaches were, where we had commonalities, where we did d- things differently, how we shared data. Um, the Russians do have some unique measurements that, that we don't do in Western medicine, which have been of interest to us, but we do struggle with interpreting it sometimes. But yeah, they, during NASA Mir, this was some, an effort they undertook that we were unaware of until about 2010.
0: Can you give me an example of something that, that they recorded that we didn't know how to interpret? I'm not, I'm not quite sure what that means.
2: Yeah, so they're very... Well, the one that strikes me as being kind of... I tilt my head because I don't know really what to do with it. They're very interested in um, the soles of the feet, and they feel that, that kind of contact on the sole of the foot is very important to other systems in the body and how it relates, even the neurovestibular system, how your inner ear works. And we don't do as much with either stimulating the soles of the feet, other than if you think about it, we kind of inadvertently do when we harness people down to a treadmill and they run and their foot contacts the surface. But we don't do it in a very sensitive manner. That's just very a gross approach that we replicate as much as possible what we do here on Earth. But the, the Russians actually put um, custom-made soles in their shoes. I think they were kind of bubbles filled with air, like when you hear about, you know, the air shocks from Nike or something, but, but they were placed very strategically to interact with certain parts of the soles of the foot to stimulate a variety of different responses. And they've been very interested with, with stressing the sole of the foot and then looking at outcomes. And and that's something that we struggle with interpreting how, how functional that is and kind of how effective that has been for them.
0: So what about you personally? I mean, there's a lot of ifs for a Mars mission, you know, if we have the budget, yeah. if the technology exists and all of that. But if all the problems were solved, I mean, they, they're, they're obviously going to need a very good physician on that journey. Is, yeah. is that something you want? Or are, are, would you yeah. go off to Mars with them?
2: Um, being an astronaut, I think, is a dream for a lot of us. Um, I think you know we've had to make decisions over the course of our careers about where, where you're most valuable to the organization. Um, I would in a heartbeat. There is no doubt about it. I think they are going to need a diverse crew to go. Um, a lot of different specialties will have to be represented in some way, shape, or form. But I think I'm one of those people who's who's going to support from the ground and the evidence base. I, I believe strongly in mentoring the next generation, who will probably you know or two that will probably be the the astronauts of the future. Uh, it, it's just an amazing feeling to be part of something that's so much larger than yourself, and that I truly believe. Um, return so much more to us in terms of knowledge and understanding and just that empowerment of doing the impossible.
0: This mission to the stars has been commanded by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler co-pilot from the PRX mothership. We are supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. If you like this episode and want to hear more, check us out at orbital.prx.org, or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And I'm Dr. Michelle Fowler, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.